Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Chris D. from The Flesh Eaters, and you're listening to Deeper Digs in Rock. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Well, come on, let's go, let's go, little darling. Tell me that you'll never leave me Come on, come on, let's go. Go again and again, diggers. Yep, that's Richie Valens, friends. One of his songs, one of the few this young man was able to write and record in his very, very short career. Okay, so this is kind of a bonus episode for everyone. <clears throat> if you're looking for the Gold Room episode, uh, that'll come out a little later this week. We got a chance to talk about Richie Valens and wanted to put this out to honor his memory uh, along with Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, and pilot Roger Peterson on what is the 61st anniversary of the plane crash that took their lives, known as the day the music died in both mythology and song. So no business uh, today except to say go to pantheonpodcasts.com for more information on all our podcasts. Okay, let's get to it. Come on, let's go. Richie Valens was just 17 when, on February 3rd, he and tour mates Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper climbed into pilot Roger Peterson's Beechcraft Bonanza after playing the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, for a short flight to what was supposed to be their next stop on the tour in Moorhead, Minnesota. As most of you know, just after takeoff in bad weather, the plane crashed, killing all on board. And with that horrible event, along with Elvis being drafted into the Army, Chuck Berry in jail, Jerry Lee ostracized after marrying his 13-year-old cousin and little Richard back in the priesthood, the first iteration of rock and roll died uh, along with them. In a lot of ways, that should have been the end of the music. Rock and roll was just going to be a fad. Um, if you want to know more, please go listen to our episodes three and four of Rock and Roll Archaeology uh, to get the full story. 
But here we are, over 60 years later, still talking about it. I think that says a lot. Ryan Sheeler is a lecturer in the Department of Music at Iowa University, where he teaches the history of American rock and roll. He is also a professional guitarist and teacher in the central Iowa area. So you can understand how Richie Valens speaks to Ryan. He decided to dig deeper, of course, and has published a short book called Richie Valens, His Guitars and Music uh, from our friends over at Hal Leonard Company. Part quick bio, but really focusing on Richie's golden era equipment in great detail, and even signature tune La Bamba transcribed, uh, this book is really geared towards the guitarists in our audience, though I think almost anyone wanting to learn more detail about this particular pillar of early rock and roll would get something out of it. Uh, bonus material includes Ryan giving a lesson uh, online at HalLeonard.com of La Bamba and uh, both the original uh, Richie Valens version and the Los Lobos version uh, from that in 1987 biopic. All of it. Uh, very, very cool. Okay, let's get to the talking. I give you Ryan Sheeler. <laughs> Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Ryan Sheeler. How are you doing today? Very good. Uh, all right. If, if I may be a little provocative in the first question here. Uh, your sure. book is about a 17-year-old who had a professional career in early rock and roll for about eight months. So why yeah. should people still care about his very limited contributions to rock and roll? Well, it's an it's an interesting effect, and we have kind of the benefit of hindsight now that it's been it's uh, actually this year is the 60th anniversary of the day the music died of their plane crash that killed Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. Yeah, February third, uh, 1959. February right. of 1959. Yeah. So we we have the added benefit of hindsight, you know. Um, in his, in his own day, Richie Valens was uh, his meteor. His rise to fame was pretty meteoric, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then, but then, right after he died, it kind of just fell off, you know, because rock and roll was um, was growing at such uh, at such a volatile pace that there were new artists and new trends, and then you know, uh, the Beach Boys came along not too not too much later, and then the Beatles, and then the rest is sort of history. So there was a law where people either forgot about Richie Valens or he kind of got lost in the sh in the shuffle, so to speak. Um, his family and his community did a as good a job as they possibly could as at keeping his legacy and his name out there. And he had uh, you know two albums worth of songs plus a lot of um, 
either reissues or rare stuff or outtakes and that kind of thing that his label kind of reconstituted over mm-hmm. the years. I think most but famously it, a live album uh, from uh, Pacoima uh, High School, right? Yeah, and that was literally like a school assembly that he played, and they had a, like a reel-to-reel recorder or something, you know, backstage that they just turned on and let it fly. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, his, his label, very his early car- live album type, right? So to speak, yes. And his his label tried their best to to, to put some kind of mastering on it, you know, but it's very lo-fi yeah. nonetheless. But that particular album is a really cool little snapshot, as all albums are, are snapshots of a moment in time where you really get to see the unvarnished Richie Valens for what he was in terms of his talent and his guitar playing and his singing and stuff. Mm-hmm. That is very evident on that album, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before, and, um, go ahead. Now, what I wanted to say is, you fast forward to 1987 is yeah, when the film the came out mm-hmm. um, that uh, directors uh, Luis Valdez and his brother uh, Danny um, worked with the Valenzuela family and, and the movie with Lou Diamond Phillips and Isai Morales and everybody was a huge hit and Los Lobos played Richie Valens' tunes in the movie and on the soundtrack. And that did, uh, there's a lot of Hollywood kind of inconsistencies and factual sorts of problems with that movie but there are little kernels of truth here and there but the soundtrack is killer and it ended up kind of putting Richie Valens' name and his music kind of back into the public spotlight a little bit more mm-hmm. so in that respect that was helpful in a, in a lot of ways and we have a newer generation of kids that probably remembers Richie Valens more from that movie than his actual um, you know his actual career yeah, because it was so short. Uh, but he, he is kind of the godfather of uh, Chicano rock, right? Yeah, he's the first nationally known, recognized nationally known uh, Latino rock star um, yeah. that really that really blended either consciously or unconsciously blended uh, sort of his Latin American, Mexican-American influences into rock and roll and R&B and, and those kinds of things. And that's, that's kind of apparent all throughout his songs, even even the ones that weren't really um, like La Bamba is, is a really good example Obvious. of it, but yeah, kind of has yeah. his, his, his sort of Latino flavor happens to percolate into all of his other songs too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, even, even though uh, they, uh, you know, at the time, uh, especially with uh, racially uh, uh, sensitive America, if I can be uh, polite about it, sure. uh, they, uh, uh, you know, tried to, uh, to kind of hide those facts uh, uh, oh. at a time. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. 
I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Yeah, and a, and a great example of that is his full his full given name is it was Valenzuela. Right, right. And... Um, they anglicized that. That was his record producer, Bob Keen, if I remember the story correctly, with with the thinking that if they if they knew it was a uh, Mexican American um, singer, that there likely is not to not play him on the record. You know, they would just put it. Oh, aside which would and, definitely happen. Yeah, how, how he, he, deal he, with yeah, it? yeah. He would have been uh, relegated to uh, uh, quote unquote race records uh, and uh, yes, and those those exactly. stations at the time. So yeah. Uh, all right. So before we dive deeper into Richie Valens' story, let's let's get some info on yourself. Um, you grew up in Ames, Iowa, and I believe you still reside there. Is that right? Yes, uh-huh. which is not all that far. It's right in the middle of Iowa. Um, uh, just right, right by Des Moines and, and Clear Lake, Iowa, where the surf ballroom is about an hour and ten minutes, just a little bit more than an hour straight north of me, close to the Minnesota border. Yeah, and uh, famously, the surf ball, ballroom is the the last show that uh, Richie, uh, the Big Popper, and Buddy Holly played uh, before they um, uh, boarded that tragic uh, plane flight. Yeah, you bet. It still exists as a functioning ballroom. They have shows there, and it's yeah. a museum because there's been tons and tons of people that have played there over the years. Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. It's kind of a functioning museum. <clears throat> yeah, well, it's, so. it's kind of like a a, a rock and roll uh, um, uh, 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 cathedral, uh, if you will, or uh, uh, you know, a mountaintop that uh, all of us need to uh, uh, pilgrimage to once, right? Yes, absolutely. And there's a historical marker for the crash site. It's about five miles north of Clear Lake Street, north of it. And then it's sort of a, uh, it's well, it's not an abandoned, but it's a rather desolate cornfield. Yeah. Um, and there's a historical marker and you can walk about a half mile out of the field and there's a monument there, which is kind of a sad but neat, uh, neat tribute to them. Yeah, yeah, we we uh, dove deep into that with our rock and roll archaeology podcast in episode three, the day the music died. Uh, so sure. uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your early background in in music. Um, uh, you are uh, you know a professional musician, and I believe you hold degrees in uh, in music yeah. as well, right? So tell us about you how bet. that came about. 
Um, I'm a working uh, guitarist in the central Iowa area. I've played for almost 40 years, like 39 years, I think, if I had to get out the calendar. Um, I started playing when I was age eight, and I had a next-door neighbor that was a classical guitar teacher. And then um, her and her husband went to Taiwan for a sabbatical, so she recommended me to another teacher. And then I heard some of my parents' generations, like Chuck Berry and The Ventures and, and Richie and that kind of stuff, that really turned me on to sort of electric guitar. And then of my own generation, when I heard Van Halen, that was it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to do this, you know? So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so- I do have, I have a bachelor's and master's in music from Iowa State. I have some graduate work at the University of Iowa figured in there as well. And I currently teach the history of rock and roll for Iowa State. It's an online class that does a survey of rock music from 1950 to 1990, give or take. And Mm -hmm. that has about in between 60 60 and 70 students. I teach it in the spring and summer semesters. Very nice. Very nice. So, uh, you know, uh, you're a lecturer at the Department of Music at Iowa State and you teach the history yes, uh-huh. of, of American rock and roll, I think is what yep. the, the, uh, the, the course is actually called. Uh, you know, I just noticed you, 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 you go from 1950 to 1990. So why begin at 1950 and why end at 1990? Well, um, I've been involved with that class for many years. My my major professor and colleague and friend, David Stewart, he used to be the trombone professor at, at Iowa State, and he started that class uh, way a long time ago in 1980 as sort of a survey of the music of the Beatles because uh, he started it right around or just after the time that John Lennon was killed. Hmm. And it started as a survey music course of the Beatles, and it kind of slowly over time morphed itself into a history of rock and roll class and I got involved with it. I've, uh, Dr. David Stewart's wife was my classical guitar teacher from my previous story. So oh. I've known I've, I've known him for many years, yeah. many, many years. And um, when I was an undergrad in the music program, um, I kind of fell in with being his TA. This was, oh, 25 years ago now, uh-huh, probably, uh-huh. give or take. And um, I started helping him w- with that. And... Uh, the nineties at that point <laughs> were, were right in the middle of it. So we didn't, there's plenty of content to cover in that, that span of time. So, um, it's no problem to fill a whole semester with just that time. Oh, I can imagine. So, so it's, it, it, it's just, uh, a, 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 a curriculum decision, not a, a historical decision. Right. More, more or less. Yeah. And eventually as we're, as we go through uh, there probably is going to be need to have a second class because I was going to say you need the you need the level two right, right 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 <laughs> so right. <laughs> cover so, grunge and rap and hip hop and all that stuff so so as an academic uh, in uh, uh, in rock history uh, where, where do you think rock and roll stands today? It's at an interesting crossroads because I think the the genres. Um, have splintered so much that it's really hard to identify, um, you know, certain, certain, certain trends, you know, like even in the seventies and eighties, uh, well, heck, even dating back to the sixties when rock started to splinter into British invasion and soul music and 
um, country rock and protest music and that kind of stuff, you could still identify certain clearly delineated trends in sort of subgenres and that kind of thing. And it seems like now that we're in the internet age and the 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 certain way that you can uh, consume or listen to music is so pervasive that there's different kinds of streams and genres that are all over the place. And mainstream radio doesn't have the impact that it quite used to, you know, in terms of bringing a very narrow list of 40 songs that... Oh, no. 40 yeah. songs or less that mainstream radio plays. You know, people... No, I don't think anybody people, under 40 actually listens to radio at all. Right. You, you know you know where I'm going with that. So it's altered the landscape in, in such a way that, on one hand, it's really good and it's really healthy because there's lots of great music that are completely off the radar that people are into that's really great stuff. But on the other hand, it's sort of, um, I don't know, it's made things a little weird, <laughs> in, for lack of a better word, because it's, it's sort of hard. It's, you know, Americans, especially this is a problem in American culture, we like our labels, and we like to put labels on things. We like to go to the record store, and we see an album that says reggae. You know, so we, know, we like to know what our labels are. Yaman. Yeah, and. <laughs> and and so I think that's a little harder, you know, what does singer-songwriter mean? That in and of itself could mean several different artists with different flavors and different kind of stuff mixed into there. You yeah, know? where, what where is, in the what, 1970s it meant something very specific. Yeah, Carol mm-hmm. King or yeah. James Taylor, right. you know, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. or, or what have you. So, I don't know, that's a very long-winded answer, but I think we're into we're in such a volatile time with the, with the internet age and the way that people uh I hate to use that word but consume their music mm-hmm. or or listen to their music and it's and it's it's also on the flip side of the coin it's also affected the music makers too because everybody has a home studio in their basement yeah. and software packages and you know you can build a pretty decent home studio I even have one in my you know, I, and I run it off of my laptop, and I have some good monitors and a couple of good mics and a good interface box, and you can make almost radio-ready uh, recordings in your basement that you can publish straight out to Spotify or any of the online vendors, thereby negating the influence of the record companies completely. You're just bypassing that altogether. Mm-hmm. Now, bear in mind, you don't get the promo stuff and the marketing kind of machine that the labels would kind of throw behind you to support your release. But on the other hand, you're free from that influence as well. So if you really want to invest the time in your own music and really make the music that you want to make and not have anybody tell you what to make, mm-hmm. you can usually do it in your basement for relatively cheap and publish it straight out there to Spotify or CD Baby or TuneCore or any of those, you know. So what I hear is, uh, you know, from an academic uh, such as yourself, uh, and I tend to agree, uh, the first uh, issue is fragmentation. Uh, The net uh, just cannot capture all the little fish in in the sea. Uh, Sure. the, The second... Uh, is uh, is the gatekeeper 
uh, that is lost. Uh, so there's no tastemakers that are, you know, determining, um, you know, what are the quote unquote hits of the day, uh, like the radio disc jockeys used to be back uh, there and the critics uh, back in the day. Um, mm -hmm. And then the third is that, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, and, and, and I'm not saying all these things are bad. Uh, there are pluses and minuses to, to everything. Um, and the third is that uh, uh, pretty much anybody can get involved. And because of the advent of the computer, uh, uh, the ability to make music uh, easily, um, <clears throat> you can put out a, a decent sounding product uh, that could compete with um, uh, uh, just about anybody uh, out in the landscape today, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think as, as a really good quick example of that, um, a guy that I that I follow that I that I like these days is the blues rock blues guitar player uh, Joe Bonamassa. Oh yeah, and um, you know he has he has built his entire career without any major label support. He has like thirty some albums out, you know, because he's done live albums and compilations and this, that, and the other. And he has his own record label, kind of his own sort of publishing unit that that you know he doesn't have any major label support at all. He's just built it through a lot of hard work, a lot of touring, and a lot of, you know, pushing his own product and his own thing out there, you know, and kind of built his whole own operation kind of up by his own bootstraps, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> very much that, you know, uh, and I, I'm sure you, you, you talk to your students uh, about this, that, uh, you know, in, in essence, you know, you, you if you go down this path as a professional musician, you are a number one, uh, not only creative, but you have to be entrepreneurial. And I think you're seeing that in somebody like Joe Bonamasso, who says, oh, OK, I am a company. I need to act and think like a company and I need to uh, allocate my resources uh, in the same ways that a, a company does. I have to uh, put marketing uh, you know, production, uh, you know, uh, uh, sales, uh, and all the other attributes that you get in a basic company in the same manner. And if you are willing to put the time and effort in, um, you two can eke out at least a decent living, if not uh, a superior living. Right. You know, it's entirely doable. And, uh, you know, as I think back to uh, like the Valens family, Richie Valens' family, um, his sister Connie, I know her. She left. She lives up in up in uh, up in Northwest Iowa and is uh, works with the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And she helps kind of spearhead the Valens family in terms of uh, keeping Richie's um, image and likeness and music out there. Uh, their older brother Bob just passed away last year, um, mm. but Connie and her younger sister Irma. And their younger brother Mario, which is your very youngest brother, kind of spearhead helped keep the 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 Valens name and his music out. And they have merch and mm -hmm. his, mm -hmm. his CDs, and they do new T-shirts every year and, and that kind of thing. So, well, it's I, been I, really I, kind of. It, yeah, I think I think the 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 you know the greats uh, uh, you know uh, of of where Richie uh, uh, is in canon 
um, uh, you know, uh, same as Buddy Holly and Little Richard and uh, Elvis, and that, you know that first that first iteration sure. of of rock and roll are secure uh, in their uh, position in history. Um, but my question is more about um, you know how today somebody can become like a, a Joe Bonamassa. That, that's a great example uh, right there that you, you laid down, uh, and I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I can think of a couple other bands that did that in in the time span of the you know the the great rock and roll era uh, of the latter half of the 20th century the grateful dead comes to mind uh who sure. you know, basically just did everything on their own and you know they 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 suffered uh, uh trials and tribulations uh and uh they did things unconventionally and yet, you know, by the time you get into the 80s, uh, you know, they become the largest touring act of all time. Uh, Fish is another example. In fact, there's a whole that jam band genre. They all seem to kind of follow that uh, formula of, hey, you just uh, got to realize that, you know, you're on your own and you've got to go out there and, and do it yourself. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the long and short it's, is that there's still great rock and roll out there. Uh, it's just not being promoted uh by the the major labels uh these days uh and uh you know uh, you know in in the the famous words of pete townsend long live rock uh, it'll never die right yeah we we hope so you know and there's always somebody comes out like gene simmons saying that rock is dead which i don't necessarily agree uh, with culturally i i flip back and forth but uh look uh you know i i had a conversation with somebody uh just the other day and uh, we were talking about, um, you know, rock and roll on the charts. And, you know, American Idiot from 2004 uh, by Green Day is the last number one rock and roll album. Uh, and it, considering it's been 15 years, it's highly unlikely another one is is going to come along. Um, and let's face it, um, uh, I have another theory that, you know, the, the guitar-driven <clears throat> uh, rock and roll, the electric guitar especially, is a... Uh, 20th century instrument. It it is invented in the 20th century. It sounds industrial like the 20th century, and we don't live in the industrial age anymore. We live in the information age. In the information age, the instrument of choice is the computer, and the computer is now the primary instrument for music making. And do you, do you agree with that, or am I am I off base? What do you think? Uh, yes and no. I think the guitar still has a has a place in 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 modern music and modern rock and roll. The way that it sort of interfaces and put, for lack of a better word, pun intended there, <laughs> the way that that it interfaces with technology and the way that you use it, you know what I mean. You're not gonna have you're not gonna have as much as it pains me to say. You might not have like you know Led Zeppelin or or Van Halen kind of really really guitar driven rock and roll, but you might have the at least in the mainstream function anyway of like you know, what teenagers listen to and in high school and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, guitar-driven rock and roll will still be probably out there to be found in some way, shape, or form, you know, because mm -hmm. I got to do is hit shuffle on your Spotify and they'll suggest certain things to you and you'll find something or another. But, yeah, it's it's difficult to say because technology has, has come such a, uh, such a way that you know, a lot of the, the music making technology or equipment is kind of antiquated. You know, we don't have we don't have Marshall stacks. Well, you can still get them for sure. You know, Guitar Center has them and all that stuff. But you know, you have software plugger plugging oh, the modeling. That, yeah, the, the the modeling emulates. Yeah, emulates. You know, right. and, mm -hmm. and and that that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. 
Yeah. We're in an interesting time. Yeah. All right. You've written a couple of books uh, prior to this new one. Uh, tell us a little bit about them. I think uh, Bakersfield to Beale Street and then Plane for Eternity, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, from Bakersfield to Beale Street is the rock textbook that I use for my class, and it is in its fourth edition right now. Um, first edition came out, oh, 2005 or 2006 or so, and it's been through four iterations since then, three or 400 pages, give or take. And that is the textbook that I use for my class, David Stewart and I, with some input also from Scott Anderson, who is the trombone professor at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, who's also a former student of of David Stewart's. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the textbook that we use in my class. And then... um, Plain so it's not just Bakersfield and Beale Street. It's the geographic representation of American rock and roll uh, yes, uh, of, exactly. uh, from, from 1950 to 1990. Chicago, Memphis, New yeah. Orleans, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. and many points in between. Mm-hmm. Playing for an Eternity is a little niche book that I have. It's an Amazon uh, imprint, and um, it is – I have served on the worship team at my church for all – 30 years now, coming up on 30 years, 29 maybe, and um, have been through many uh, conferences and um, different kinds of things, have played for my denomination's national conference twice, and have have accumulated a wealth of different experiences. And um, when I was coming up in in that capacity, there was not a lot of resources for um, a guitar player to grow into a contemporary worship setting and into what churches in America were growing into. Well, right. So, I mean, it wasn't too long ago that, that most of, uh, uh, of the, the, um, uh, Christian, uh, um, uh, uh, churches denounced rock and roll uh, as the devil's yeah. music and now I, I i've been in some uh uh some uh churches uh modern modern worship uh centers that uh uh make uh uh some of the great uh venues of rock and roll pale in comparison yeah it's we've we've come a, a long ways you know um and it, to the point where it started to come come sort of full circle where some of the younger generations are getting back into sort of the old hymns of the faith and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But that's okay. a whole other cycle mm-hmm. anyway. But I thought this particular book would fill a certain niche that would help uh, guitar players in at least the local church level or the regional church level really tackle some issues head on and try to give some shoe leather, some practical concerns to um approaching playing how to play in a worship band, um, which sort of comes into my philosophy about playing in, in rock bands anyway, how you approach arrangements. And instead of just playing the guitar, playing a part, you know, creatively coming up with parts that enhance the song and the worship experience in such a way that you're contributing more than just playing notes or, mm-hmm. or what have you, you know, mm-hmm. and then kind of considering yourself as, as more of a part of a whole, in terms of that sort of philosophy of, of kind of playing in a worship band. Hmm. Okay. All right. So why a book on uh, Richie Valens and his guitars? Interesting that you would, you would ask that. The, the short answer is I figured that um, 
well, first of all, there really wasn't any. You know, there have there have been several books on Richie Valens over the years. Of course, yeah. and um, uh, in particular, uh, his full-length biography was written by a, a woman named Beverly Menheim, and she's out of the Seattle, Washington era area. And her book came out right around when the movie came out. And hers is the only full-length bio of Richie. There's been some other books here and there, various various uh, avenues. But I had never really thought, you know, in my years of playing and studying and that kind of thing, it, it appeared to me, because I've read a lot of rock history books, uh, tons, you know, mm-hmm. based on my research and teaching and just for enjoyment. I can imagine, and I've, Professor. And I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed over the years that it seemed to me that Richie never quite got his due among the early generation of rock guitarists. And that might've been because he was too young. might've been because his career was so short Yeah, and, you know, probably a combination of those reasons, but, you know, and the fact that the other really great guitar players of the time were, were a little bit older, they were in their twenties, you know, late, late to mid to late twenties, even Chuck Berry and, Bo Diddley and, uh, you know, um, Scotty Moore from Elvis's band and Buddy Holly, those guys were older than Richie, you know, and more established. And they had, you know, the, before they got famous, they paid their dues in the, in the, in the clubs and, and whatnot. So in, in those respects, they're probably a little bit more experienced than Richie. And in terms of being a natural talent that really developed and uh, caught a lot of people's attention, I think Richie, probably didn't quite get the, his due as a guitar player that he should have. And that is sort of the impetus behind behind my book to kind of bring, bring as much of that info together as I, as I could and present it in such a way that, you know, maybe people will take notice of his music in a little bit different way. So the the book begins with a quick synopsis of Richie's life, and it sounds like you did a fair amount of research. I'm speaking to several people who knew and worked with him uh, in that short period of time. Like we said, I think his professional career is eight months. Um, yep. What new insights did you learn? Um, interestingly enough, uh, several different things. I didn't. My my book is not a bio, and um, you know it's not meant to be as thorough as a bio. But I don't think you can divorce somebody's life from their music per se no, in terms no, of their, no. what, what, what their upbringing was, mm-hmm. what they listened to and sort mm-hmm. of all that figures in, in there. So mm-hmm. I think that I should have had at least a biographical sketch anyway. So mm-hmm. that's the reason for putting that in there. Um, I talked to Beverly Mendheim a lot. I talked to uh, Richie's uh, parents or not parents. I'm sorry. His, his mom is dead. Actually mom since dead, but, um, Connie Valens is still alive and uh, their sister Irma and brother Mario were still alive. And I talked to Connie a lot off and on and she sent me different info and, and, and one thing led to another and it connected various people. So that was really interesting in, the, in that regard. Um, so what new insights did you learn? Yeah. What I, what I learned is uh, what, how he, he's basically was in, entirely self-taught didn't read music, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I learned about how he how he really uh, loved his guitar, and how he how he picked up certain instruments where he got them from. You know, the person that was incredibly helpful was Gil Rocha, who is still alive, who is the leader of the Silhouettes. Um, who's that was the garage the band that he was in, right? Yeah, 
portrayed very much incorrectly in the movie, I might add. But uh, Gil is is a super nice, nice guy, and another guy that's kind of the keeper, one of the keepers of Richie Valens's uh, legacy. Has some very old pictures from way before Richie got signed, and was really helpful in kind of that sort of in between period. Uh, you know, right up to before he got signed and his career took off, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Gil told me about the music store that they used to go to and rent slash borrow <laughs> equipment from, um, which is still there in some capacity or another. It's Castle's Music in the San Fernando Valley, and which led me to finding the owner of, of Castle's Music, who isn't the original owner, but he's like the second owner. I think he's had it since the 70s. And it's the same music store in Wayne's World where Wayne is going to try the white Fender Stratocaster and signs is no stairway. And that music store is Castle's <laughs> Music in San Fernando, little That's pop culture right. uh-huh, tidbit t- uh-huh, there. Uh-huh. But Ed, the owner of Castle's Music, dug through his archives, and I have this in the book. He let me include a scan of the original receipt from 1958 where Richie's mom co-signed for his Gibson guitar on consignment. It's totally faded, and you got to get out a magnifying glass to read it. But I put in a scan of it, and uh, as as best as I could in my book. So that's another little interesting historical tidbit that's in there that uh, yeah. not many people have seen before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. All right. So now, uh, just real quick for for our diggers who are, are unfamiliar with with Richie's story, uh, he was born in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, to a laborer father who passed away when he was about uh, eleven. Is that right? Or am I? Am yeah, I fairly young. And, yeah. Uh, uh, and and his mom, they, his mom and his dad had divorced uh, when uh, when he was even younger than that. Uh, and uh, he ended up in out in uh, the northern San Fernando Valley, but one of the the the, the northern uh, reaches of the Los Angeles Basin, uh, if you will, yes. out in Pacoima. And yep. uh, and then when his father passed, his his mother uh, reunited with him and uh, took over the raising of uh, of Richie, uh, and was very. Um, uh, uh, energetic and uh, and appreciative of his talent, and actually uh, uh, helped him a, a lot to uh, uh, to 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 achieve his dreams. Right. Mm-hmm. And Richie basically picked up. Um, he had, he got like some kind of cigar box guitar from one of his relatives, and he had another relative show him some chords and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, Gil Rocha also tells me that this is sort of. Going into the the mid to late fifties in L, in L A, the the uh, Mexican American community was heavily into blues and rhythm and blues and early rock and roll. The doo wop and Chuck Berry and all that stuff was on either. I can't remember the call signs of the of the radio station, but there was one or two stations in there in the valley that that they were listening to heavy, and that was a huge influence on on all of them. That sort of black music, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so so he gravitated to uh, the African American music that uh, was on the far end of the radio dials back in those days, like a lot of kids did uh, in that uh, post-war period, prior to uh, rock and roll really becoming a thing. Right? The the old what uh, what we now call rhythm and blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and just by virtue of his heritage, he has this sort of. 
the Mexican-American kind of musical cultures kind of seeping in there just by virtue of his upbringing. Yeah, I was going to ask, how how did growing up in in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles shape him and his sound? Uh, And, you know, obviously uh, the uh, the R&B music of the day uh, had something to do with it, but also his uh, uh, Mexican-American heritage, right? Yeah, you bet. You know, so it's, it's kind of interesting to hear that percolate through his music, you know, in terms of his delivery and his phrasing of his singing and some of the, some of the guitar playing, you know, it's not over. little thing. It's, it's, it's definitely no, not over. No, no. Yeah. But, 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 it's but, there. but it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I could see where at the time people wouldn't quite pick up on that. Um, you know, uh, but you know, as we've become a more informed society, uh, it becomes more obvious, and and certainly after the movie, it it you know, and and, and Los Lobos uh, playing those songs, it you know, it it seeps uh, in it uh, in it now. Uh, you know, you can definitely hear it uh, uh, straight away. Uh, but that was not the sure. case at the time, right? No, matter of fact, it, 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 and as best as I can recall, I don't believe Richie spoke Spanish uh, natively speaking. I think he is. Is really the language they they spoke English mostly around the home, and he you know spoke maybe a little bit of conversational Spanish like Spanglish, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. in order to learn La Bamba, I think he, I think his aunt Ernestine, uh, if I remember the story correctly, had to kind of yeah phonetically. Him. That's all right. I think he phonetically, had to learn phonetically right? Yeah. To, to do the words, you know. So because uh-huh. there are still various audio excerpts that you can actually hear Richie talking in promos and radio things like that. You, know, you go digging on YouTube and not a lot of that stuff's there. So you 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 have a decent spe- uh, uh, a decent sort of look, and you can hear how he how his speaking voice actually was. And you know he had some kind of a, a Mexican accent there, but he had pretty, very clear English too. So that's kind of an interesting dichotomy that you that you wouldn't think it, but you know. Yeah, um, he, he kind of he, he sounds like a, a you know a Southern California kid uh, you know yes. with a, you know uh, you know that 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 you know <clears throat> isn't uh, you know uh, uh, I I wouldn't call him uh, you know the uh, uh, you know a prep school kid uh, but right. uh, just had the, the 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 lingo of the street going on which probably endeared him to uh, a lot of his uh, his fans so it, it, he's sixteen seventeen years old. Uh, and he gets plucked, uh, you know, uh, from the face in the crowd, uh, and, you know, very, very quickly, uh, reaches, you know, this high level of stardom in this new sound, this new thing that we're, we're just calling rock and roll here. Uh, and I, I think it really kind of begins and revolves around, uh, meeting Bob Keen, uh, who really helped Richie achieve fame so quickly. Right. Yes, uh-huh. Um, I'm going to get this story wrong. <laughs> I hope I'm going I'm to do this the best that I can. You have to dig back in, in the archives and do some reading for all the listening fans out there because I may get a piece of this wrong. As best as I can recall, um, the person who did Bob Keen's, uh, Bob Keen's business cards knew uh, Richie and knew Gil uh, and, and and knew that Richie, uh, I think, was in the silhouettes, but also Richie would also either jam at high school and he would, like, jam down to local uh, movie theater, like, on Saturday mornings, just, you know, just totally, completely informal gathering. 
and he knew that Richie was going to be playing on a certain Saturday. Saturday, this was, gosh, I'm trying to say, early 1958, somehow or another. And long story short, Bob King went to see Richie play, and he was really kind of uh, sort of awestruck at the kind of raw energy and talent that Richie Richie had, and um, had talked to, you know, the sort of the the rest is history. Um, Beverly Mendheim's book is probably the best resource on that, and I'm sure I skipped some details and might have gotten something wrong, but that's the general gist of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was it was meeting Bob Keen and, and Bob recognizing rather, that uh, that he had that fortuitous. innate talent. Uh, yeah, yeah, and rather fortuitous. <laughs> and he had a studio. I think he had a home studio over in Silver Lake, which is uh, closer to downtown uh, Los Angeles and Hollywood. And uh, yeah, I think he for, brought uh, brought uh, Richie down to start doing some demos. Yeah, for the for the time period, he had he had he had some really nice. I think he had either some Neumann. No, he probably had some Telefunken microphones, which are really state of the art. Yeah, even for time. that time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. and he had highly yeah, prized he had today. A, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and I think he had a, a legit Ampex uh, two-track reel-to-reel, you know, and he had some good baffling downstairs and stuff. So he was able to make some good demos. And I think, as this, as I remember the story again, going off the top of my head, at least part of the basic tracks of, of Donna were done at Bob Keen's uh, studio, and then mm-hmm. he took it, took the tapes to Gold Star and added some other stuff to them. But I think, you know part of Richie's uh, recorded output still is left over from some of the stuff in Bob Keen's home studio. Yeah, and let, let's talk about Gold Star for a second here. So Gold Star famously is uh, where uh, the Wall of Sound and Phil Spector uh, did their work uh, uh, later in the 60s. So this this is a very professional studio uh, uh, setup uh, uh, Absolutely. At, at the time. It's a big deal. And I think yeah. he got to work with, uh, like, uh, Earl Palmer uh, and Carol Kay in what yeah. would become an, the Wrecking another, Crew. The, the, it, excuse it, me, the Wrecking Crew uh, played on some yeah. of those tracks. Uh, that's yeah. pretty pretty crazy. And then uh, we, we, we have to talk about Renee Hall because Absolutely. you brought up something in your book that I didn't know, and that was uh, Renee's use of, uh, of, of a very specific bass guitar that really enhanced and 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 created that unique sound that you you get when listening to those records right yeah if you listen close and it's uh like certain segments of the riff of la bamba like the first opening four note grouping and some and certain parts of the riff that kind of come in and out and another song of richie's that it's on couple like the cover his cover of boney maroney and I think Bluebirds Over the Mountain and stuff. It's sort of that twangy sound that occupies the sonic range kind of between a low-tuned guitar and an actual bass. It's a Dan Electro, and I think it's the Longhorn, I think was the only... Uh, Carol Kay told me about this. Carol Kay is still alive, and she runs her own website. She's got books out and everything. She's probably you know, getting in, into her 90s, I'm sure. But she was in, incredibly helpful, her, her and I... Uh, corresponded over the course of probably three years off and on on this project and um she remembers because she played the den electro longhorn bass on on subsequent recordings that she did in the 60s and stuff so she has first-hand knowledge of all of this and the den electro was made out of masonite or some kind of bizarre i used to call yeah, it yeah yeah right, right, right. very very non-resonant material right, <laughs> you right. know and um 
uh, I can't remember how it's exactly tuned, but it's like a six-string bass. Yeah, so yeah. Is it, is it, there's an eight-string version, so it was the six-string version that uh, that they were using there. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, timbre, you know. Mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. That, by the way, that's the way that you pronounce that word. Some people, like on the talent shows, pronounce it as timbre, but it's actually timbre, and it means tone color. And that's my music academic we we will accept it, Professor. <laughs> timbre it is. It's an interesting uh, kind of uh, timbre or tone color that kind of adds itself to these songs. And Renee Hall doubled the riffs on it. You know, um, I think on Come On, Let's Go, I think the guitar solo is Renee Hall, too. But a lot of that guitar playing is is Richie. I was going to ask, is is he actually playing, uh, you know, because th- th- this was very common uh, back in the day that, uh, you know, you, you, you may have uh, written a song, uh, but when you t- came time to come into the studios, uh, if your chops weren't up to, to speed, then they would hire the professionals to come in uh, and, right. and do that. And, and then you would sing over the top of that. Yeah. And since Richie was kind of an untested talent, you know, I wanted, they wanted to get the pros around him, you know, which I can totally understand that. But on the other hand, uh, as I sort of, as I, as I learned through my research, and this is talking with some other people like Pat Wartink, who um, did all the restoration on Richie's original silver tone guitar. And Pat has known the, the uh, balance family for years and he's very knowledgeable guitar maker and repairman used to work with Wayne Charvel and lots of other people. Mm-hmm. Pat Wartank mm-hmm. is his name. And um, I talked to him and he made an interesting observation um, that, that Richie, um, a lot like Buddy Holly in this, re- this respect, didn't like to sing unless he was playing his guitar too. Oh, so, I, I, I can understand that uh, uh, um, because he also so did they, a lot of improvisation, both both uh, musically and lyrically, I, I believe. Uh, and so, you know, to have the, the guitar and vocal, uh, you know, in, 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 in a symbiotic relationship um, uh, to be able to do that. Uh, yeah, that, that that's a, that's a skill that you just it, it, without having the other piece is just not going to work for you. Yeah. So, and and, and uh, among the things that the movie got wrong, and there's lots of them, but um, among the things the movie got wrong is it shows Lou Diamond Phillips in the studio uh, singing without playing his guitar, and um, of course his voice, his singing voice is dubbed over by Los Lobos David Hidalgo. Yeah. Um, but that whenever you hear Richie singing on 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 the albums the odds are very likely that he's playing guitar too because he was, you know, he didn't like to sing unless he was uh, playing guitar. And I also talked about that with uh, the guy who's the head, one of the, I think he's the head uh, guitar instructor at Norman's Rare Guitars out there in L.A., uh, Sal Gutierrez, uh, who has also known the family. Sal has uh, known Beverly and the Valens family for, for many years, and I was able to pick his brain also about some of the Richie guitar stuff. And that he also mentioned that to me, whereas uh, Richie didn't like to sing unless he was playing his guitar too. And that was, uh, Buddy Holly was kind of the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so so during his lifetime, he only had two hits, uh, Come On, Let's but, uh, Go and Donna, uh, which was... Yeah, well, f- technically, yeah, and then La Bamba was the flip 
of, uh, yeah, so, uh, so it's, uh, it was a B-side of Donna. Uh, that, and, ended up, that ended up being a, a hit, an unintended hit. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Although it really, uh, you know, it doesn't chart. It's Donna that charts. Uh, but right. I think you're right. It's almost like having a double A side uh, is, uh-huh. is what drove uh, that. Because, uh, you know, uh, unlike the kids today, they, they don't understand that, uh, you know, uh, even the cost of a, of a 45 back in the day, you know, you had to be choosy on uh, what you spent your money on. And, uh, right. you know, boy, a double A side, uh, that, that, would, that would be a, a big plus uh, for your uh, uh, 45 cents or whatever it was back then, uh, as opposed to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the competing record that only had one good song on it. Yep, for sure. But still, those two songs are 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 you know the charting songs. La Bamba, as we as we just said, is 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 on the the, the backside of of Donna, and that was uh-huh. written for his real life girlfriend Donna Ludwig. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, as we've established, uh, you know Richie was of uh, of uh, Mexican American heritage, and Donna was Caucasian. And I understand. Um, her father was really unhappy about this union. Yeah, and the movie the movie delves into that a little bit too. Um, that's been that's been talked about in various books, but it's Beverly Menheim's book, and a little bit in Bob Keen's uh, Bob Keen's biography. I can't remember how much of that's actually in there, but yeah, that was that was definitely uh, an, an issue um, back in the day. Yeah, uh, it's uh, thankfully much less so today. But um, uh, you know, uh, in the the 1950s, uh, you know, America was uh, ex- extensively racially divided, uh, and uh, institutionally so. Uh, and um, uh, you know, the expectation was that uh, the quote unquote races shouldn't mix. Um, so, but the song itself, uh, uh, transcends that, right? Yeah. 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 I, I, I believe so. It's, it's a beautiful song. Uh, when I, I just recently did uh, a book signing up at the, uh, Iowa rock and roll hall of fame, as I mentioned earlier, and, um, they had another musician up there kind of playing some background rock and roll and, I took breaks from my book signing and I, and I grabbed a guitar out of their attic <laughs> and, and play, played a half hour set of some Richie's tunes. And I come on, let's go and Donna and that kind of stuff. And those, those are wonderful songs, you know? Yeah. 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 So now, you know, come on, let's go. Uh, that, that's, that's a, a barn burner, uh, you know, a yeah, that's a heck of a song, uh, <laughs> you know, amazing, uh, you know, absolutely amazing. In fact, uh, you know, just this year, uh, La Bamba was selected by the U.S. Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Boy, I, I, I'm not sure if you, you, you get a big, bigger endorsement uh, than that. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. When I listen to Donna, it, it um, you know, and, and again, this is a 17-year-old kid. This is uh, his first forays into a studio. Um, it's it's a little bit of a raggedy version of an Everly Brothers song. Do you, do you, do you disagree with that? No, no, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. You know, I can't say that I agree or disagree. I don't think I've ever sort of thought about it that way. Um, and Bob Keane actually talks about this in his autobiography. Excuse me. Um, 
he talks about this uh, was Richie was kind of was very a sort of an untrained musician. Like, um, you know, he would make up verses of songs or he would have pieces of songs you have to string together. And especially Come On, Let's Go, Bob Keane said he had to do, yeah. you know, 30 or 40 tape edits, which back in the day. That's, that literally a lot. With a, that's, that's literally with a with a razor blade. Right. Yeah. You know, if you've ever. I've had the chance to work in an, in an analog studio a little bit. And that's, you know, you thread the tape through the face, the splicing block and you mark it with a little white sort of grease pencil type thing. And you cut it with razor blades and you hope that you don't shred your fingers and, you know, and then you tape it back together with splicing tape. And, you know, that's, yeah. you know, we can all do non-destructive editing with software now where it's a piece of cake, but you know, Back in the day, that's what editing no, meant. 30, you know? 40 edits, uh, that's, that's, that's a lot. Because uh, he says, R- Richie, you know, because, um, you know, that, that song, if you kind of count through it, it's got a very, very finely delimited verse and chorus and bridge and stuff. And I guess Richie would either, you know, make up words and um, either not sing it the same way twice or sing it different. Or, you know, not do blocks of the verse that would be like eight bars long, it would be like four and a half or something, you know what I mean? So in order to kind of fashion it into a song, Bob Keith had up the old spicing tape, you know, and razor blade and had at it for a night. Well, I, I've always said that, look, the key to rock and roll is is not perfection. Uh, in fact, it's the opposite. Uh, it is about energy uh, and authenticity. And if those do not bleed through the speakers, you, you're you're not really a rock and roll artist. Uh, you know, you you're missing the point. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, if uh, if if this is a raggedy version of an Everly Brothers song, you still feel the authenticity of the words and the music coming through in Richie's voice. That you know is is heartfelt, and and that's that's Absolutely. obvious. And I think that's the sell, and I think that's what people really gravitate to, and why you know these songs written and performed by a seventeen year old untrained musician um, still you know have that. Uh, that uh, 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 that that life blood to it that we all are searching for. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's part of the appeal, really. You know, because it comes us, it comes across as human. You know, yeah. It's sort of the beautiful, the beautiful thing about music is the human experience. You know, and the yeah. sharing of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so February third, uh, really the the day the music died. You think? Yeah, I think so. There was a lot of there was several different events there that right at the end of what they call the golden age of rock and roll, uh, that you know, uh little Richard went into the ministry and forsook forsook rock and roll and uh, you know, uh, yeah. Elvis went in the army yeah. and Alan Free got in trouble with the payola yeah. and Jerry Chuck- Lee married his thirteen year old cousin. <laughs> yeah, and Chuck, Chuck got, got arrested. In trouble. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. But I but I I think for for Buddy and Richie and the Bopper and the and the pilot also we can't forget about Roger Peterson, mm-hmm. um, but uh, Richie, you know Buddy Buddy was well established and the Bopper was oh, starting yeah. to get there, mm-hmm. but Richie was the highest, you know he was he was at his apex at that and he was probably the hottest star on that tour, so for all three of them to die, you know, and we're we're talking about the baby boomer generation. This is my parents. My parents were twelve years old at this time and. Uh, 
you know, we're from Ames, which is not that far from Clear Lake. So they remember it in the news. Um, you know, for that generation, this was before Kennedy died and this was before Vietnam and all that stuff. So that generation still had its youthful innocence, idealism yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, and innocence intact. And they didn't expect their heroes to, to die. You know, they didn't expect no, to be that. Not these, the young, these young guys. Yeah, they were supposed to live forever. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and 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 for you know, it was a plane crash, and and it's just it's just surprised everybody. You know, it was it was really you know, and then Don McLean later immortalized yeah. it in the song and all that stuff, and yeah, yeah it, was, it was just a very a very difficult event, you know, because rock and roll represented the youthful uh, innocence and the and the time. It was literally their soundtrack. It was a style of music. That started in their generation and it grew in their generation. So yeah, and after the after their deaths and uh, you know the uh, the other uh, artists' uh, trials and tribulations, uh, it it you know the establishment uh, thought, oh well, this was a fad, and uh, we'll go back to uh, making the music, uh, the professional music that uh, we were used to to making, at least until um, uh, February 9th, uh, nineteen sixty four, when you know the explosion of the Beatles occurred. But right. you know, do you do you prefer the original incarnation of rock and roll, the the as you just said, the golden age over successive forms that came later? No, uh-uh. and people always ask me what's my favorite favorite music, and I mm-hmm. tell them kind of it sort of depends on what mood or what side of the bed that I woke up in the morning because <laughs> I have a I have a gigantic music collection, and I play, and I've had classical training, and I've played in rock bands, and and done all kinds of different. I literally love most. I mean, there's very few genres that I can say that I that I really dislike. Ah. You know, it kind of just depends on what it, what sort of mood that I'm in or a true rock and roll archaeologist. I I try. (laughs) (laughs) I really try. So let's switch gears to his guitars, which you devote quite a bit of your book towards. Um, You know, most know Uh Richie as a Fender Stratocaster player, Um, but Uh that's not entirely true. Um, You include a a Gibson ES-175, which is a semi-hollow body, uh, a Harmony uh, H44, uh, which is a a, a solid body guitar like, like the Stratocaster, but brings different elements to it. An Epiphone Ritz acoustic and a Gibson ES2 uh, 225 uh, TD. So, yeah. if you can, uh, in a generic way, kind of explain what what why those are different and, and maybe where uh, he used those guitars. Yeah, let me see if I can do a, a monster quick drink from a fire hose summary. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, the Harmony guitar was his first electric, and he either got it at a pawn shop or through his family. It never was able to quite tracked down um they were made available by the sears company and there was a sears in the san fernando valley um so it's very possible that his mom got it from sears but it was a secondhand guitar and it's kind of a pawn shop prize um and he refinished it was originally uh gold in color but he refinished it red and then his brother bob didn't like the red so in in like high school or junior high shop class he refinished it that green um, and that's the replica. The original is in the Grammy Museum in L.A., mm-hmm. and the replica is Lou Diamond Phillips uses one in the movie. It's pretty pretty spot on there. Um, and so that was kind of his early electric guitar, and he played that through all kinds of different amps, like 
uh, Fender Tweet champs and some of the lower end Fender Tweet little tiny what I call keychain amps. You know, mm-hmm. um, the 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 Epiphone Ritz is famously a picture uh, that happened. Uh, Gail Smith is she's still alive also. She was the head of the Richie Valens fan club back in the day, and that is at her parents' house in like October '58, and that is like a rental slash borrowed guitar from Castle's Music. And uh, that is a 1940s-era Epiphone Ritz, um, kind of a mid-to-cheap-priced mid acoustic. And it's kind of immortalized in the movie. Pat Wartink made, built the, the copy, and it says Harmony on the re- the headstock, but the original was oh, Epiphone. happy, right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gibson ES-175, uh, as uh, in my exchanges with Carol Kay, um, most, most of the, uh, like Pat Wartink and Connie Valens both had told me that Richie mostly played his harmony in the studio, at least on those early tracks. Mm-hmm. But Carol Kay said she also remembers him playing a, a Gibson, uh, hollow body of a full size hollow body on some of those sessions. And, um, since they borrowed a lot of, uh, uh, guitars and rented stuff from castles, uh, that's entirely possible. That was the only picture I could find with Richie with an ES-175, and that's at a Silhouettes gig sometime the year before he got famous um, at like one of the Legion Hall gigs that they played. And I shared that picture with Carol Kay, and she said, yeah, that's more like it. Mm-hmm. And then he had and then he had, he had the Gibson ES-225, which is a thin line, kind of a mid-priced, uh, kind of uh, semi-solid acoustic with the F-holes. And he got that from Castle's music. And um, I don't think he ever played that in the studio, though. He played that. That's his guitar in the Live at Pacoima Junior High album uh, that he played. He played that at some gigs in the late fall of 58. Mm-hmm. And then I'm not entirely sure how and where he got the Stratocaster from it. That took a lot of work, and it was uh, somewhat dead ends. Uh, Pat Wartink told me that uh, Leo Fender gave uh, him and Buddy... Uh, all new fenders for that tour and since the winter oh, dance the party winter was, tour. Oh, the winter dance party the winter mm-hmm. dance party was booked mm-hmm. well in advance yeah. of, of them actually going on it and a lot of reaching sort of famous professional promos promo pictures were done in either very late december or early january of 59 the promos that everybody has sort of known him for mm-hmm. and all of those have the fenders so he got it yeah. like right around then and it's probably the one that leo gave him Right. Probably a late, late, probably a late '58, early '59 uh, Fender Sunburst with a maple neck, and it, that was his live guitar on the Winter Dance Party and like I think the Alan Freed Christmas Show, I think, and some of the other kind of it. It's kind of weird because Richie's career is only eight, eight months long, but kind of his late period, which I call December, January, February. That the Fender Strat was his main guitar. Yeah. Right then. Yeah. And in the promo pictures and, uh, you know, considering that he was uh, uh, still on the rise uh, at that time, you know, as you as you said, on the winter dance party, he you know, he was the main attraction uh, uh, out there because he was the new kid uh, that was, uh, you know, making all the noise. Uh, that's why the, yeah. the Fender Stratocaster always comes across as like the 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 the, the guitar of choice for him, but which is not really the case, which I, I got from your book. Um, so. You, you spend some time trying to replicate the Richie Valens sound. So, how would one do that today? 
Well, it's a combination of things. Uh, this is usually well before the, the guitar pedal and effects era, so then we weren't even really talking about any of that stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of a straight-in amp or a direct sound. And uh, Richie, it's kind of a more more or less a self-taught player, really, uh, for all intents and purposes. And he and had a very heavy heavy pick attack because I think he was really into like Bo Diddley and Eddie Cochran and some of those guys that were that were really great rhythm guitarists that had a lot of drive uh-huh. to their to their sound. And another interesting segment is this is when Dick Dale was kind of kicking around uh, Southern California in the late fifties and early sixties. And I'm sure that him and Richie uh, crossed paths on a number of vacation or uh, occasions because Richie was playing sort of venues like the El Monte Legion Stadium and a number of different venues that were on, on his kind of upward swing in the mid to late 1958 or so. And um, there's been a lot of accounts him sort of. Uh, getting to know Dick Dale and Dick Dale is another really heavy, heavy rhythmic player, you know? Oh yeah. Especially at that time. And, and, uh, uh, pretty, pretty famous around the LA uh, scene, uh, uh, around that time as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do that, kind of, kind do of... that and that'll get you, uh, the, the basics of the, of the Richie Valens sound. Yeah. And he had a lot of the, you know, you can tell that he was listening to, you know, uh, Chuck Berry, cause he had a lot of the double stops and the pentatonic kind of licks and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm told that he, you know, at least was familiar with like Johnny guitar Watson and the early BB King records and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. some way, some way, shape or form. Hey, or he at least heard that stuff on the radio or, you know, I'm not sure what he, his folks had for a record collection around and stuff, but I'm sure he was at least exposed to that kind of stuff. And, right, right. um, there's a, an example of, uh, there's an instrumental, gosh, I can't remember if it's on his first or second album, and I should know this by now, but I think it's on his second album. It's called Big Baby Blues, and it's an instrumental piece that uh, he had originally worked up. Gil had wanted him to kind of work up a slow blues for the silhouettes, and he uh, he had he had worked up this, this piece called Big Baby Blues, and I think it's an instrumental it's on his second album, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I can't remember, I should know the track orders of these off the top of my head, but without them in front of me. <laughs> well, you, you, you break down all, so, so we, now, now we kind of have an understanding of how, how to uh, uh, obtain uh, that uh, early rock and roll sound uh, performed by, by Richie Valens. And uh, you actually break down um, La Bamba in sheet music that's found in the book and also yeah. recordings that are at uh, Hal Leonard Music uh, with, uh, if you use a code, that's also found in the book. So how, how did that come about, and uh, you know, what did you learn from doing those? Well, originally the project was going to be a lot bigger. Oh, let, let me add one other thing. So you, you, you do yeah. both the original version and the Los Lobos version from the 87 movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that would be kind of a little interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. Kind, Talk about a that. Nice, yeah. Uh, a nice little tidbit. Originally, the project was going to be a lot larger. I was going to—I had worked up transcriptions and lead sheets for all of his songs on both of their studio albums. Mm-hmm. But in in process with talks with my uh, with my publisher, um, we we're trying to work out the math for the royalty calculation of sheet music, and it's <laughs> it's kind of screwy these days. Um, so, you know, we decided to kind of table that and just put one song in this book. Um, 
I think at a later date, we're going to try to hammer it out and work out that we, cause we'll probably maybe do a book two mm-hmm. of, of, of all the transcriptions and stuff. And that's, we're going to talk about that next year. I think we're gonna, that, that looks pretty promising, but so we arrived at the fact of just putting one song for now into the, into the guitar book. Uh, so I, 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 I literally put in the work. I got out the metronome and I got out the headphones and I worked, <laughs> I worked that all out by just doing, cause I have a composition background too. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm halfway decent at notation and that kind of thing. So I thought it'd be cool to have a, a fresh set of ears on, uh, you know, kind of bring that into the modern era just a little bit and, you know, um, whether or not people dig it, <laughs> I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I dig it and I think his fans will. So I, I liked it. I was, I love, I spent some time on the, uh, the recordings and going back and <laughs> forth and, uh, uh, first hope, of all, it I must've been I... a blast for you guys, uh, to do. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I could, you know, I could uh, see the similarities and the differences. Yeah. I, I hope I, I hope I got it right. You know? Some people might argue that I that I put some idiosyncrasies in there, or maybe I got I got, I got it wrong. But that's that's my level best shot at, at doing it. And I thought it would be cool to because uh, Cesar Rosas of uh, Los Lobos, uh, Los Lobos's lead guitar player is the guy with the shades. You know, oh, yeah. um, he 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 put some sort of modern accoutrements and playing techniques into their version of it. Yeah, you know, they made that solo section longer, and he's got a little bit more flashier. Yeah. licks and tremolo picking kinds of things in there. Well, well Caesar wasn't 17 when he did it, so that'll tell you all yeah. you need to know right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I thought that would be that would be kind of cool. You know, we've all, I mean, I've been in bands off and on since I was like 14 years old, so I've, yeah. I've had the occasion of playing that song in bands and I kind of had some had knowledge of actually having, having played it too, so. Mm-hmm. Well, where do you think Richie Valens would have gone musically if he had survived into the 1960s? Boy, that's the million dollar question that everybody gets asked, you know? Um, and it's sort of a function. It just depends. Some artists were able to grow out of, out of, out of that era and expand their music and keep it vital and fresh. But, um, other artists were victims of the times and they kind of got relegated to the oldies circuit at the state fair, you know? So yeah. it's, it's hard to know where Richie would have fallen. I, I think he was uh, talented enough as a guitarist and a singer and his, his original material showed enough promise from an innovation standpoint that I think that he would have continued to really grow and, and, and develop, you know, it's, it would be interesting to see, you know, because not ten years, barely ten years later, we have Jimi Hendrix coming yeah. onto the scene. You yeah. know, and 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 Jimmy knew of Richie's tunes and and was well aware of Richie Valens. You know, so it'd be kind of an interesting thing because you know, and then Santana has his first gig at or his first major gig at Woodstock. So that would be kind of an interesting thing to see had Richie lived where he would fit in that. Just not ten years later. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's an interesting thought experiment. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, 
in, in my mind, I, I can I can make a, a direct line uh, to Carlos Santana, and uh, you know Carlos Santana is still out there making great music today. Uh, so wouldn't surprise me if if Richie uh, uh, would uh, still be a, a, around me, maybe sitting on a stool these days, but uh, but still uh, playing to a, a adoring fans and uh, and and having you know hundreds of compositions uh, under his belt. So, well, what's sure. next for you, Ryan? Well, I'm getting ready to teach my class um, in the in the in the spring that kicks off here in January. Um, so I'm kind of dusting off some lectures and recording a couple of new wow, ones. Wow, I like how um, you Iowans think that January spring, but go on. <laughs> yeah, it's got to to keep it optimistic <laughs> somehow or another. That's right, that's right. <laughs> um, hopefully to do some recording and playing next year, because um, I have a couple solo albums of my own, but I haven't done that stuff in a long time, so I want to buckle down and maybe do a new solo album next year of my own stuff. Mm and do some more playing with my bands. And I think there'll probably be some more book projects. My publisher does want to do the Richie Valens songbook for the remainder of his tunes. So yeah. we're, we're, we're looking at that as a very strong possibility for 2020. Um, and, and, uh, the winter dance party is in the first weekend of February up yeah. at the surf next year. And, um, I'll be selling my book at the Valens merch table and having a nice kickoff for that. And, uh, yeah, hopefully it should be a productive 2020, I'm hoping. Sounds like it. Ryan Sheeler, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Great job, Ryan. Great times. And I know uh, you were in Clear Lake this last weekend at the annual celebration of that evening when in the surf ballroom, three of the early great rockers were putting on another great show and expecting to build this new thing called rock and roll. Hope you and everyone had a fun time there. Please go out and get Ryan Sheeler's new book, Richie Valens, His Guitars and Music, wherever you find your good music publications. Okay, yeah, it's it's weird to look back in history and realize that with this plane crash, along with the travails of those other early rock and rollers, it should have all faded into history. Uh, luckily, others took up the baton, uh, most obviously our uh, British cousins, and handed it back to us. Um, and uh, here we are 60 years later with something more akin to a cultural movement than a fad. Uh, I'm sure the elders and establishment of the time are, are spinning in their graves. 
good for them. We owe so much to that first crop of musicians that helped invent the art form. I, I just want to keep reminding everyone that without them, even it's in its primal forms, uh, and some would say uh, where every rocker should aspire, uh, we just wouldn't be here today. I know I certainly owe a huge debt to those that helped create this thing we call rock and roll. So to get a chance to expose anything uh, about the originals, I find important, and I hope you do as well. Okay, keep in mind, uh, the Gold Room interview is still on the way. It'll be out this week. Uh, now, go listen to some Richie Valens, and as always, keep up the rocking. Oh, Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.